everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by Thomas Kutzman, co-CEO and co-founder of Preview, a real estate technology company on a mission to save home buyers money. They're based in New York and expanding to more cities. He's responsible for the marketing and finance functions there, and prior to starting Preview, spent over a decade in financial markets at asset management firms and top-tier investment banks. This is a great interview, and we really cover a lot. The benefits of bootstrapping for as long as you can before you take venture capital. Why it makes sense sometimes to have the co-CEO approach. Affordable home buying and the future of prop tech. And pivoting from corporate life into founder life. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on Product Hunt Radio today. I was really excited when uh, your team contacted me and talked to me about the fact that you're doing a lot of exciting work disrupting the real estate industry. I am a very common millennial in the sense that the idea of owning a home is something I hold dearly in my heart, but is also very far away from my reality. (laughs) So I'm uh, appreciative of anyone who is trying to improve the experience for buyers and bring more transparency into the space, which I know you are doing. So I thought it might be fun to just start out hearing you tell us a bit about yourself and your company. Sure. So I'm Thomas Kutzman. I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of Preview. We're a digital home buying platform on a mission uh, of saving home buyers money. And I think you hit the nail on the head, uh, you know, for, for millennials in particular, uh, you know, it's the largest portion of home buyers, largest portion of first time home buyers. And the affordability, especially in major cities like New York, like San Francisco, uh, within the U.S., it's extremely expensive to buy a home, not just the, the f- from the cost and the down payment of a home or the cost of the home itself, but from closing costs and you know, the embedded commission f- and fees uh, associated to it. So you know, we unlock up to 2% of savings uh, back to the home buyer. So we give a commission rebate to the home buyer for working with us. And we're able to to do that by having a technological platform that you know we call uh, you know a friend in the early miles and an expert in the last mile. So it's a better customer experience for the home buyer. Uh, it's a more efficient platform for the agents to help those home buyers. At the end, you get a check back uh, for up to two percent of your purchase price. So you know on average, we save home buyers uh, you know to date twenty three thousand dollars per transaction. So if you're a millennial buying your first apartment. It's a huge savings, whether you're trying to pay down college loans or just want to furnish that first uh, apartment or first home. So it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, feeling to you know, bring that savings uh, to the consumer, particularly millennials. Yeah, that's incredible. I've often wondered how it can be that we get so far in our lives without understanding in full how really important markets like the real estate market work. I don't know if you've realized this from interacting with your community and even while you were developing your product, but I have conversations with my friends where until someone actually finds themselves going through that process of trying to invest in their first property, you almost are quite ignorant of all of the costs that are involved and all the different things that you have to do. Do you find that when you speak to your community and when you were sort of developing the product yourselves? For sure. Even, you know, very sophisticated, you know, finance professionals or tech professionals, um, you know, they're very well educated. They're they're just not well versed uh, in the real estate transaction. Uh, And given that it's such an infrequent purchase for, for people, it is more difficult to really have a deep understanding of all the fees and all the costs. 
And when you look at it in the U.S. versus other parts of the developed world, uh, the U.S., you know, commissions in particular, brokerage commissions, are two to three times what they are in other places like the UK, Germany, uh, and other very developed, well-educated uh, you know, parts of the world. So um, it is very surprising that you know, people aren't aware. However, give us, it's just such an infrequent purchase. I think it's very important for us as a company uh, and for people in the industry to really educate home buyers uh, and sellers about the process. But you know, we focus particularly on, on the home buyer transaction and I think the key thing of why home buyers aren't aware, um, there's this half truth perpetuated in the real estate industry that it's you know quote unquote free to be represented because you know the seller's paying for it. But at the end of the day, it might not be a cash line item for that home buyer, but it's still coming out of their pocket because they're showing up with all of the uh, the money to purchase the home. So synthetically, they are they are paying it. So. I think it's a you know big disservice the industry had been doing in not educating folks of you know what their brokers uh, getting paid in the transaction. Thanks so much for shedding more light on that. I mean, I I live in London. I had no idea that commissions over in the U.S. could be up to two or three times more than uh, what brokers get here. Um, so yeah, that's incredible. And to think that you facilitate savings for for the buyer in that sense is amazing. I thought it might be fun for everyone who's listening to rewind a bit uh, in the preview story. You know, you've been around for over four years now, but a lot of the folks in our community are at the beginning of their entrepreneurial journey, or at least in the very early stages, let's say pre-seed, seed, maybe angel round level. And I always like to ask founders when I have them on the show to tell us a bit about the origin story behind their company. Uh, and I thought it might be particularly interesting to hear not only what led to you starting Preview, but also why you and your co-founder Chase made the decision to be co-CEOs, because truthfully, you are the first co-CEO I've ever interviewed. Um, and I know a lot of founders in the team struggle with making those big decisions around who should be their co-founder um, or who should be in that founding team. So I'd love to hear from you for you know, early days leading up to preview, and how you and Chase decided to be co-CEOs. Yeah, no, happy, happy to. Those are those are a couple, you know, great questions there. The I, the origin story is, you know, Ch Chase and myself, you know, we both worked in finance, uh, you know, and we had both invested in real estate over the years, and you know, we keep we kept having these conversations about you know frustrations with our real estate brokers and like, what am I paying for? What are all these high fees and when you take a step back, like we felt we were having that conversation so often that, you know, other people must have this frustration with the fees uh, and the antiquated process. Um, you know, we had both, uh, when we first started working together at a major investment bank, uh, we were focused on equities trading in the technology sector, so public technology. Um, so when we saw how many, how other industries had changed so much with the implementation of technology, um, we were shocked at how slow and how little that real estate had really uh, changed. So, you know, it really was born out of that, you know, frustration with the fees and the, the antiquated process. And, you know, as, as it relates to, you know, being co-founders, being co-CEOs, um, you know, it is very unique in today's world. You usually have, you know, one person take the reins, but what's made our journey uh, through entrepreneurship and friendship, we've known each other, you know, a decade now, you know, we really value each other's opinion. We we look at the world in very different ways, and that leads to better decision making. 
Um, you know, it also leads to a better, you know, division of labor uh, as far as like the key tasks. So for example, Chase is more focused on the pure real estate operations, you know, and legal focuses for us. And I'm more focused on marketing and, and finance and the accounting side. So uh, it's really a great partnership in that regard of, you know, having clear lanes uh, and having a lot of mutual respect uh, that leads to better outcomes. That's awesome. I was curious, you know, you mentioned how the collaborative dynamic that you've created as co-CEOs helps with better decision making and helps with better division of labor. Was identifying those specific parts of the workload that you have affinity towards because of your skills, your background, your interest, what led you to decide to be co-CEOs? So for example, the fact that Chase focuses on the pure real estate side, the legal side, and you focus on the marketing and the finance is that sort of what led to that decision? Uh, it wasn't. A, it wasn't obviously a, a, a formal decision. I think, given that we we started the company in such a way where, I think any entrepreneur, any founder, in the early days, you have a lot of tasks to complete. You're you're that's you know, call it a jack jack or Jill of all trades, and you know there you have to divide and conquer. And naturally, you know you gravitate towards you know what you're what you're stronger at. And that becomes more and more apparent as you get uh, farther and farther along in your journey. Uh, so, you know, it happened very naturally for us. But I think, you know, going back to the original point of like the mutual respect, um, you know, if you don't have respect for your co-founder um, or if you're dismissive of, of their opinions, uh, it won't be a good partnership. So I think it, it starts from a place of mutual respect and you, you will find your lanes of what's you know, the maximum impact for your startup. Amazing. Thanks so much for sharing that advice. I know that that is one of the hardest decisions that founders have to make in the earliest stages, finding the right co-founder, and then also deciding how to split all that work up in the most efficient way between the team you have. So I appreciate you sharing insight on that. Now, you mentioned just now um, when you were giving us some more detail on the preview origin story, the fact that you and Chase both had jobs in the finance industry. I thought it could be really fun to hear how you came to the decision that you were going to walk away from a very lucrative profession and take this risk to disrupt an industry, use technology to build a platform, you know, change the game and become an entrepreneur because that's quite a big jump. <laughs> so I just wondered if you could talk us through how you came to peace with that decision internally and were able to take on that risk, feeling pretty confident about the decisions you'd made. For sure. So I, I think the first and f uh, foremost is that, you know, everybody thought we were crazy uh, when we first left our jobs. Like uh, we had previously worked together at, at one major investment bank and all of our colleagues or former colleagues there uh, were very surprised uh, the move we were making. Uh, at the time I was actually living and working in Geneva, Switzerland, focused as a U.S. equities trader for a large hedge fund out there. And I think we got to the point where we were talking about the idea too much. And we, you hit a moment as, I think, an entrepreneur, and you, you think to yourself, if I don't do this, will I kick myself if someone else does? And we hit that point. And I think what was unique for us compared to most other entrepreneurs, um, you know, particularly, you know, you know, there's the, obviously the class, classic narrative of someone coming out of a, you know, Stanford and, you know, starting a company out of a garage. We did have the luxury to, you know, take a leap given our prior careers. 
Um, but also those prior careers gave us a lot of visibility and a lot of perspective of the product we were building because we we ourselves were home buyers or sellers over the over the years but also having that ability to look at other analogs above and beyond real estate itself from our prior career so that was it was definitely helpful but you know I got countless you know text messages and phone calls when I resigned from from my role in Switzerland people were definitely shocked when I, when I made that move and when Chase uh, resigned from his firm yeah i can imagine and I feel like, so from the conversations that I see happening on Product Hunt, particularly in our makers community, I see a lot of folks grappling with this dilemma, specifically an idea they feel very passionately about a problem that has impacted them on a really deeply personal level. And they feel they can build a solution to it that doesn't yet exist, but they're in a really comfortable position or they have a really great job and a lot of the times, because there's so much uncertainty and risk around entrepreneurship, unless we are immersed in an environment where other people are in the same boat, it can feel like an unwise path to take. How did you, almost on a like mental level, navigate moving forward with your plans and with your decision, even as folks in your support network were indicating that you might be a bit crazy. There, there are a few things I, 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 that come to mind initially. I, I think the first thing is we, we were in risk-driven professions before, you know, as an equities trader, you know, obviously people see the, you know, things on television, you know, movies like Wall Street, et cetera, but it is a very risk-driven culture. So you become not immune is immune is definitely not the right word, but you become more comfortable with risk-taking. And I think when we looked at preview um, from the when we first started and when we you know pivoted uh, about two years ago to the current model, we definitely looked at it from the scope of this is an educated risk. This is a massive market. Real estate, uh, residential real estate in the U.S. is the largest market in the U.S. Uh, you know, 1.5 trillion of, of homes trade every year. 80 to $100 billion uh, is spent on brokerage commissions every year. So it was a massive opportunity, but it was clearly an educated risk factor, you know? And when you look at the next thing of like taking that risk and that, you know, moving away from that comfort, you really have to one believe in what you're doing and believe in yourself um, because if you don't believe like you're going to be able to pull it off, you you shouldn't even attempt it. But moving away from that comfort, I, I think it comes down to like the amount of comfort you had before. I think it's really the personality and that ability to take risk. Because um, you know we see day in day out with other founders we meet, um, not everybody's equipped to to handle the the stress load and risk when it's all on your shoulders. Yes, definitely. That's true. I guess you had some experience getting stress tested <laughs> from uh, managing hedge funds and all that kind of stuff. But of course, it's still a different arena and it has its own challenges. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, you, like some other makers in our community, have entered tech from a previous profession where you were able to gain a lot of domain expertise or have you know really unique insight into the market that you're now building a product in. What's interesting about that is, like many makers in our community, is that you're not a product builder yourself by nature or you know, from what you used to do before. I just wondered then, when you and Chase decided you were going to commit to building this platform and solving this problem, how did you decide to go about 
creating your first version of the product, assuming like neither of you are programmers yourselves. I feel like the way you made that decision could be quite helpful for other folks out there who, like you, have gained all this incredible experience and insight and now want to use technology to solve a problem, leveraging that. That's a very great question. So in the early days, even when we were building the product um, or even looking to you know, raise money in the very, very early days, you know, not having a technical co-founder you know, was a limiting factor for us. Uh, we had an idea and you know, we didn't come from a product-driven, you know, engineering-driven background. Uh, so a lot of our early you know, wireframes and designs were you know, you know, computer paper with, uh, with a pen and we, we would draw out what we thought you know, the early product would look like. Uh, and we used an outside, you know, consulting team that helped us build it. You know, we, by hook or by crook, taught ourselves how to, you know, be quasi PMs until we could bring in a, a, a real product leader like we have today. But I think it comes down to, you have to have an idea and you have to be resourceful to go help find the, the folks that are going to help you build that product. Searching for a technical co-founder is, it can be difficult, um, and when you look at, you know, the environment of East Coast versus West Coast, I think there's, there are less engineers in New York than, than San Francisco. Um, but there are a lot of great consultants to help you build an MVP. And I think if you have a, a good MVP and a, a product to put out in the market, you have data then to go tell a story. You, it's much more difficult to raise money on an idea if you're not a technical founder. Uh, so I think, you know, by having that MVP, getting some initial data and proving out the concept, that's, that's what really, you know, makes the difference when you go to, to raise money. Exactly. As you said, data is so compelling. And I think, um, as you advised, getting your MVP out there as quickly as possible or putting yourself in a position where you can start getting feedback from your market and your potential customers helps you build the case for further investment. Yeah. And, and just to, just to add one thing there is that, if you're not aware of something, so like, I think it's very important for founders, especially non-technical co-founders to, to really be focused on learning. Uh, so, you know, I had coded in, you know, C++ and Visual Basic in high school, which was, you know, completely irrelevant for what we were building because we're built in Ruby on Rails. But even in dealing with our outside consultants in, in the building we were doing, um, I took a, a one-month.com Ruby course. I took a one-month.com Rails course. Like I had no intention of being the person that was going to code our site uh, or our application, but I wanted to be able to understand it so I could properly communicate. So I think if you're a non-technical co-founder, I think you should definitely invest time in at least um, learning the language so you can be more productive uh, in your conversations with, uh, with your product team. This is amazing. I have never heard of one month.com and I, I just went on their website and I was like, whoa, this is so cool. Clever. Yeah, that's such great advice. Definitely like to keep learning. And I definitely see that as a theme that always resurfaces in the community. Everyone wants to keep up skilling. Even folks who are really technical want to stay at the forefront of all the new languages and new tools. But yes, I think that's really, really encouraging advice and also totally, totally feasible. So thanks for sharing that. I also wanted to get your insight on picking the market in which to launch. Um, I think what's really unique about your product, and I'm sure a lot of founders in similar spaces or trying to tackle similarly specific issues will relate to this. You know, real estate industry, you know, is in terms of 
how the markets move, like quite localized, right? Like there are like trends specific to certain markets. And of course, I understand the biggest motivation of using your platform for buyers is that saving, particularly in, as you said earlier, areas where the cost of getting on the property ladder is already so high. How did you make the decision to start with New York area? There were two key reasons. The The first and, and foremost was we, we were f- from the day one, we planned to be a brand of, of savings for the consumer. And you know what better place to go than one of the highest price point markets, not only on a, you know, the apartment or property prices, but also from a closing cost perspective, there are, you know, a tremendous amount of transfer taxes uh, that come into play in New York uh, that are, that don't exist in other parts of the country. Uh, so when we we saw the potential to really have a maximum impact of savings, you know, this was you know definitely a, a potential home base for us when we looked at different cities. The second key thing, you know, I'm originally from New York. Chase and I both had you know previously worked together in New York. We knew the market intimately, uh, so there was you know definitely an initial you know, a domain expertise from a geographic perspective. But when we look at our growth plan from here, there are a, a ton of very attractive opportunities for us as a company that are major metropolitan cities where we can have that same level of impact from a, from a savings perspective. Incredible. Yes. Come to London, please. <laughs> so I thought it might be fun for you to share some advice around financing strategies and, and fundraising. You know, you've already mentioned that you sort of pivoted the platform a couple of years ago, just for the folks who listen to this podcast to get advice from the, to get advice from those who've been in the trenches. I thought it might be great for you to share the decision-making process that you and Chase went through when you were thinking about how you're going to finance this company and then how you actually went about executing on that plan. Sure. In in the very, very early days, uh, you know, we were bootstrapped with, with our own money. Uh, you know, we were fortunate to you know, have some savings from our prior careers uh, and we believed very strongly in our idea and ourselves. Uh, you know, so we, we did bootstrap with our own money. And I, I think there were some important lessons in that. Uh, I know not all founders have that, uh, you know, that ability uh, to take that pursuit. But or even if you did a small friends and family round, I think to build out an MVP and prove out your initial concept, doing it with less money and in a bootstrap fashion gives you an important learning around operational discipline, uh, the ability to be creative and the maximum efficiency with the capital you do have. And I think it makes you a better leader, a better company to have those, you know, I don't want to say frugal aspects to it, but, you know, a little bit more operational discipline with how you deploy capital, which becomes infinitely more valuable when you have a great amount of capital to deploy, because then you have a well-oiled machine to deploy for marketing or other other, uh, areas of your business. So I think coming from a bootstrapped um, place definitely allowed us to prove out the concept. You know, fast forward that um, to um, where we pivoted, you know, in early 2017 to the current model today, by being bootstrapped, by being disciplined with how we used not only our capital, but some friends and family capital in the early days, we were able to really last far longer and prove out the concept 
in a much more attractive way from a data perspective, from the amount of traction we had in New York, the other places we wanted to go, and the actual learnings on our customer acquisition, our technology, and where we wanted to go as a company. So I think if you have the luxury um, to try to bootstrap bootstrap as long as possible, so you have enough data and a story to tell investors. That's really interesting. I really like the angle that you've taken with bootstrapping and being very for it. We've had quite a few interesting folks on the show. I'm thinking of like, you know, David Hanemeyer Hansen, the inventor of Ruby and Rails and CTO of Basecamp. And even folks like uh, Marcus Taylor from Venture Harbor, a lot of them came on the show to talk about the advantages of bootstrapping more from an angle of, I suppose, just control. And the fact that once you take outside funding, you lose it. But it's really interesting to also hear about the value of bootstrapping, to use your phrase, in terms of developing one's operational discipline. And this idea of being very cognizant of how one is spending and where one is spending and how quickly one is deploying capital. And I think many of us know within our networks, someone that raised a very ambitious seed round or angel round and burned through it very quickly and is no longer around operating that company telling the tale. So I think there is really a lot of value in being reminded of that when one has limited funds and is trying to make that runway last as long as possible. One is forced to be creative, as you said. And also, just try to focus on the goals, focus on the results and not get distracted. And if you get into the habit of doing those things and build the foundations of a company with that mindset, as you said, when capital is in abundance and you can spend a bit more on things, you can feel confident that you're spending them on the right things, the things that really move the needle. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly right. And when you go to raise that first venture round, like we recently did, you know, venture partners are going to see that. They're going to see that in your business results. They're going to see that in how you talk about your business. And if you're a good steward with your own capital, you're going to be a good steward with with their capital. And you know, I think we're at a definitely at an inflection point in the venture funding round. You know, post we work, we work, and post all of the you know pulled IPOs of of late, I think that changes the game in the the next rounds of funding for Series A, B, and C companies. It's going to be a bigger shift towards that you know unit economics, operational discipline versus growth at all costs. And you know, I think we're going to be better off uh, in that environment by being uh, you know much more uh, disciplined uh, with how we spend money. Agreed. Totally, totally. And I think that is definitely a shift that is, you know, filtering all the way through every level where more and more makers are focusing on what will make them sustainable. So to that point that you've raised, you know, what do our unit economics look like? How disciplined are we and how we're running our company? All of those things are really important. And I think it's great that they're coming to the forefront and that they're becoming a priority. One question that popped into my mind as you were speaking about the shift in the landscape of venture capital was whether or not you felt navigating that space was easier because you and Chase worked in finance as well. Because, you know, venture capital is just a type of finance. Did it give you a bit more confidence than, let's say, like some founders that 
are intimidated by venture because it's not the most transparent industry and it does rely a lot on informal networks and things like that. I just wonder if you felt that it was helpful to have been in that industry and kind of, you know, understand the incentives and the motivations of investors. It it definitely helped, you know, go preparing a slide deck and understanding how to tell a company's story, you know, from, from our prior careers, you know, I've, I had sat in many meetings with, you know, CEOs, CFOs of, of major U.S. companies and hearing how an executive tells a story about a company is very important. So I think having that knowledge and that experience of how deals come together, what are particular factors within an industry that are, you know, driving interest or trends, uh, it, it's hugely valuable to have that experience. So, you know, I... I I'm very happy we had that going in. Um, that said, you know, going through a fundraising round, uh, obviously we were successful at it. Uh, it is not an easy path. There's a lot of personalities to navigate. Uh, there's different styles of communication with certain types of investors, particularly in the real estate industry. There's definitely a bifurcation between, you know, prop tech or real estate tech VC firms. Uh, and more generalist uh, consumer-facing VC firms. So there's definitely a, a different approach from that regard. It's not an easy process. So I think for any founder, for any entrepreneur that's going to raise capital, it goes back to my point about bootstrapping. You, you want to be in a place where you have the data and the story to tell uh, and have momentum with that. Because if you go out raising you know, money just on the, an idea on a napkin, it's extremely difficult, especially if you're not a, a technical founder. So you know, I'm sure there were plenty of VCs um, that we met with that were like, oh, great, there's two finance guys, no technical co-founder at the, in the early days. Why would I invest in a first-time founder like this? But when you looked at the performance and the results and how you can bring people together, how you can pull product leaders in uh, over time. That really you know, rings true. And it shows that you're an adult at the table uh, that knows how to run an efficient business. Um, and I think that's where it really rang true for us, where we had a story to tell. And we really figured out very quickly after those, you know, early, that early difficulty of how to communicate our vision and our differentiating points to the VCs that we were talking to. Yes, that's so helpful. I find that really valuable. Um, that idea of leaning into the data constantly as well, like regardless of who you are. Um, but I also appreciate your your honesty around like the challenges of fundraising because you know you've pointed out the fact that there's always going to be some element involved that is hard to predict and beyond your control. You know, you pointed out the fact that you're you're navigating personalities. Uh, and I think sometimes folks forget that variables like that just add complexity. So it's just always important to to keep that in mind. I remember seeing a question in our community the other day where someone had asked, how long does a fundraising round take? And of course, you know, it's like, how long is a piece of string, right? Sometimes it happens really quickly. Sometimes it takes months, if not a year. And I think because of some of those things you've just flagged, there's always going to be personalities and other variables that are kind of tough. So um, I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about leadership. Leadership is something that I feel all of us as professionals want to constantly be improving on and practice continuous learning when it comes to ourselves. But 
of particular importance to founders because you put yourself in a position where you are turning vision into reality, building teams, motivating people, motivating your customers, motivating investors. There's a lot of responsibility riding on your shoulders. I would love to hear from you just on a personal level. What are the things that you do to invest in your leadership skills? As far as in investing, I think it's it's all about the learnings. Obviously, I, you know, I shared the story earlier about going out and taking a, a Ruby course or a Rails course. Uh, in the early days, you know, obviously, I focus on a lot of our marketing efforts. I came from a finance background. I had taken one marketing class in college, and I was intrigued by how are we going to acquire customers. Uh, and I took a digital marketing course through General Assembly and taught it myself for the early, early learnings. You know, now we surround ourselves with, you know, additional, you know, additional marketing folks on our team. We've had great, you know, advisors over the years, but I think it comes down to for a leadership. If you show that you're going to learn something that you don't know, others around you will go and learn something they don't know. Uh, and you'll find your passions that way. I've, I've fallen in love uh, with the storytelling of marketing and trying to figure out how we can connect uh, with home buyers and and their journeys, and each home buyer's journey, you know, is very different. So I think coming back to any leadership, you know, whether you're a CFO, COO, or CEO, I think you really need to understand what are you excited about, and are you continuing to invest in that time of of learning uh, something new that's going to help you in your journey. Thanks. I love that idea of showing that you are willing to learn something will inspire those around you to also learn something new themselves. I think that's really great. And I also think it's great that you are captivated by storytelling. I think it's something that really just connects us to each other, connects us to our experiences. I don't know if you've read the book Sapiens by Yuval Harari. I have not read that book, but there's a, a great book I read recently, I think, for any marketer that's listening. Um, there's a book called uh, Marketing to the Entitled Consumer. And I think as a millennial myself, you know, it, it's very easy for people to you know, throw the term entitled out there a lot in terms of, like, oh, you're just an entitled millennial. But the, the book delves into research around the majority of people being entitled in some way, shape, or form. And it's, you know, driven by by things like Amazon and, and Uber, where, you know, 10 years ago, you'd sit there and say, oh, well, no one's ever going to be able to hit a button and get a car delivered to you. Um, and now people complain when like, oh, no, like, like my Uber's five minutes away, like as if it's like a, a, a major inconvenience. But I think when you're thinking of, you know, communicating with consumers, understanding like what drives them what what are those in, you know points of entitlement not in a negative light but you know what are their expectations around the bar that's set for you now when you look at the amazons ubers of the world um, you know how is your product stack up to that as far as the the expectation of one click to get something done Yes, I love that. That's so cool. I'm definitely going to read that book. Do you have any other recommendations for for content? Maybe like the podcast that you make sure you always listen to every week or or any other books you've read this year that you are keeping on your desk? Uh, not to be a brown noser, but I, I obviously do listen to the Product Hunt podcast. Uh, an, a, another favorite of mine is, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Jason Calcanis. What he's done, I think he recently did his 1000th show of this week in startups. Uh, I think, I think what he's doing from a content perspective is great. Uh, and then specifically within like the real estate tech community, 
Uh, I think Nate Smoyer's the TechNest podcast is great. And uh, there's a new one. Uh, I, I forget the name of the host, but it's called the CMO Podcast. It's a, it's a former marketing leader from Procter & Gamble. And he's, he's had some you know, great people on there. Um, even, you know, I think one episode I watched recently where the marketing professional that helped rebrand Kroger's, the grocery store, it was a great episode because going back to the storytelling, you know, how do you revamp a, a brand that's been around for over a hundred years, but staying true to the you know, brand values? Um, it was a, it was a very interesting podcast, and uh, you know, but I think podcasts in general, uh, I find it as a great way to learn on the go too. Like I listen to podcasts, you know, every commute to and from work. Uh, sometimes even when I'm doing work during the day, I'll listen to to ones that I'm interested in. And even back in the day, like as when I first shifted from finance to real estate tech, I felt I we were a bit of outsiders uh, coming in. So uh, there was a period of time where I actually hosted a podcast uh, and recorded 35 episodes uh, called "Real Estate Is Your Business," and it was a great way. And I, I'd recommend this to anyone that was new to a, uh, a sector or new to an industry. The best way to get to know people in the community is, is network. And the best way to network is over a conversation. So why not record it and, and share it with the world? And I've met some you know great folks who made introductions to investors over the years have become you know, advisors and friends. So, um, you know, highly recommend, uh, highly recommend uh, doing that. I love that suggestion. It's so true. And it's, it's so feasible. Nothing stops anyone from just starting to reach out to people and have conversations and create valuable content that other people interested in that space or wanting to know more can get value from. So thanks so much for reminding us of the power of conversation and also just how feasible it is to like start making those happen. I know I don't have a a lot more of your time. So um, I really wanted to make sure I asked you for some product recommendations. As you know, at Product Hunt, we're obsessed with products. So um, my favorite part of the show, after I get all of the juicy gems of knowledge out the way, is to give you an opportunity to tell us about products that you are obsessed with right now. So it might be the apps that never leave your home screen, might be some cool piece of hardware you just got. It could be anything really, maybe even a site that you bookmarked because you love it. But yeah, this is just a fun time for you to tell us more about your products that you like. Yeah, so I'm I'm a big believer in Allbirds. I I find them super comfortable. I know it's a bit you know cliche nowadays when you you know it became like the classic you know SF bro culture shoe. But being in New York, I don't think it's you know fully hit its stride here yet. So uh, you know I can be under the radar and comfortable at the same time. So I I also being a marketer, I love watching the way they send their emails and show out show off their new colors and new styles like i saw an instagram ad yesterday from allbirds that i thought was great where it was the wool high top it's their first wool high top i've always wanted the wool high top high top but they didn't have them they only had them in the tree fiber um that's probably a bit more granular than you expected as far as commentary but so i i, I love my allbirds so i i always look for what's going to be my next color my next pair um so that's one thing and then observationally uh, obviously, I'm not a customer, um, but my wife is, I would call her almost like an ambassador for Rent the Runway. If you're not familiar with Rent the Runway Unlimited, uh, I think what they're doing is terms of a brand and, and unlocking uh, 
you know, closets for women and making corporate clothes more affordable. Um, I listened to a podcast once with uh, the CEO, Jennifer, I believe it's Jennifer Hyman. And she had talked about how women spend 20 to 25% more on work clothing than men. And it's even, it's, it's, it's so exacerbated in that uh, how much you spend for trends and styles. Like for men, it's a, a lot easier when it comes to like more standardized clothing. You can rewear things without people noticing, but for women, it's much, much more difficult. So this whole concept of your closet in the clouds, not only from a product, but also from a, a marketing hook, I think it's, it's spectacular. And uh, I was riding the subway probably like a year or two ago, and they had a marketing campaign, you know, the subway ads, and it was, what will you do with your closet? And it showed women using their closets as uh, yoga studios or home offices. And it really like, it told a story, but it's also a great product that, uh, especially for women in, in major cities, I think it's uh, it's a hugely valuable product. And uh, I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, that goes on to be a 10 to $100 billion company one day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wish they were in the UK. I think they're only in the US right now, but I'm definitely seeing more similar versions of peer-to-peer fashion marketplaces or, I mean, you know, earlier this year, Anthropology, Urban Outfitters and Free People collaborated to launch their own clothing subscription. It's like $80 a month and then you can order what you want, send it back, keep it if you want to buy it. And it's amazing because, yes, it's annoying having to buy new work clothes all the time. Um, The fashion cycle moves so quickly. Um, So, yeah, I love that proxy recommendation by your wife. That's very, very cool. So, Thomas, we've kind of come to the end of our recording. I just thought it might be great to remind folks who are listening that want to find out more about Preview for you and Chase and the work you're doing. Where should they head? Sure. So if you're interested in buying a home in New York uh, and more cities to come soon, go to preview.com. That's P-R-E-V-U.com. Uh, and if you're interested in you know connecting with me directly, uh, you know I'm active on social media uh, and LinkedIn. It's at Thomas Kutzman. Um, so I'm always you know happy to connect with folks uh, in the industry or just other founders looking for perspectives. In the early days, uh, you know I asked a lot of questions about you know people that were a few years ahead of me. Uh, and I'm always you know, looking to return that favor. Amazing. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime... Share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.